The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss this week's business headlines, inspirational success stories, and get brilliant advice from the board you can't afford. We're also joined this morning by special guest Simon Hanna, Chief Executive of award-winning wholesalers J.W. Phil's Hill. And as always, if you want advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, simply email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. So gentlemen, lots of interesting topics this week, including energy bills, tax rates, and of course, Boris sunning himself in a Marbella amid claims of a growing crisis. But we start with energy bills. Chancellor Rishi Sunak's resisting calls to bail out manufacturers hit by soaring energy bills. There's also demand for a cap on gas prices. What should the government do, Tom? My goodness. Well, you'll have heard me say many times, um, everybody thinks the government can sort everything. And the government can actually do very little, in my opinion. And good entrepreneurs just get on with it. We're going to talk a lot today about, you know, interest rates. We're going to talk about gas prices. We're going to, and absolutely, entrepreneurs can't do anything about them. They can't. So all they can do is get on with their business, find solutions for their business round about this. Don't worry about the things you can't control. You on your business. You find a workaround all these things. So... Am I asking the government to look at this? Yeah, fair enough. But there's only so much a government can do. Even if that means some manufacturing companies could go to the wall? Well, I think what we've got to look at in terms of energy, are our businesses on an even keel competition-wise with Europe, with Asia, where perhaps they are getting subsidised and steelmaking comes to mind, Willie, where it takes a great deal of energy to make steel and competitors to British steelmakers do get subsidised. So that's not a playing field. So governments can deal at that level, but they can't get down to the micro level of saying, oh, well, your business is affected and yours is not, no, dear. You know, so I really am, you know, we don't ask too much of government, we're never disappointed. Entrepreneurs go on with it, Donald. Do you agree, Willie? Um, I, I think that this is a serious issue. Um, obviously, the headline at first was the, you know, potentially £400 a year uplifting cost for um, households. I think to business, this, this could be, you know, real serious. And I think that, I hope we don't do what we usually do. As Tom says, entrepreneurs will find a way around that. They'll find a short-term solution. But I really think that we should have a real deep, look at her old utilities energy situation you know we cannot rely anymore on Putin not switching the tap off so gas isn't coming to Europe now I know there's a big big push that we move away from gas in the next few years and I completely understand that but we we, we spoke about it in the last couple of weeks we have to look at nuclear we have to look at other ways that we're in charge of our own destiny you know we're talking about we get our LNG, most of it now from Qatar, and we store it in tanks underneath the ground in Wales and all of these things that we do. But the problem for me is is, is that 
the whole supply chain problem, the whole energy problem, nobody's actually telling us why the cost is going up. Right, so is it because of, is it more? Is it costing more? Why, why is CO2 now, is a shortfall of CO2? Why? No one is answering the question. No one is saying whatever. The British government ran out a couple of weeks ago and gave a company potentially running any hundreds of millions to help with the CO2 shortage. So all of these things at the moment, I would have to say that the one thing that the government was terrified of as we went into COVID is that, that all these indicators at the moment are looking to create the perfect storm. You know, if we see now we've got a shortage of labour, we now see that the supply chain has been affected and we can probably give another 10 stories of things that we've learnt since the last show about the supply chain. I think at the moment that the government has to put some sort of task force together. Tom's right, they won't come up with a solution, but they need to speak to people. You know, we're speaking, you know, well, you know talking to Walter Malcolm about logistics, we've mentioned in the past. No one seems to be getting engaged with the experts in these industries to find First, a short-term solution and a long-term solution. But the point that you made there is the big, big worry here is there is companies uh, that have been running. I've seen a, a glass-blown company been running for 162 years. They're talking about closing their doors because they cannot survive. And it was interesting to watch the managing director on the TV the other morning. They, their gas plant runs 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and the reason it does that is the cost of closing it down to start it up again is huge, absolutely huge. So I think that we need, um, the government won't find the answer, but they really, really need to get people in a room to see where we're heading with the, with the whole energy question. So it's a perfect storm coming, maybe, Tom. What needs to happen? Yeah, so um, I noticed that the British government um, put in a former... Tesco CEO to look at supply chain. So I'd welcome that. That's someone who knows what he's talking about, Willie. Yeah. Um, but let me be controversial for a minute because Willie's right, why? And there was a good article, I'm afraid not in the Herald, it was in the FT, um, and it was trying to say Brexit or COVID. And I think the British government are hiding behind COVID because if we hadn't had COVID, Willie, Brexit would be laid bare. 100%. Yeah. Really? COVID has definitely masked the, the the problems that have been thrown up because of Brexit. I mean, look what's happening this week in Northern Ireland. I mean, after all that talk on the debate, they're talking about throwing half of it out. I mean, so they couldn't have been that clever in the first place. You know, the protocols, everything that's been you know, called into question this week, they're talking about now backing down and, you know, not doing 80% of the checks, you know, in the border in, in Northern Ireland. So I totally agree with, with, with Tom. Um, if we were not talking about COVID at the moment, then we would see that Brexit is, is going to end up being a complete and utter disaster. But we can't change Brexit. So this is my point. Um entrepreneurs need to worry about the things that they can alter and we can't alter Brexit anymore. So the clever entrepreneurs say, this is the hand I've been dealt, how am I going to find solutions? How am I going to find work-throughs, work-rounds? And that's, and that's what entrepreneurs do, Donald. And of course it's not perfect, but where does change is opportunity? And the clever entrepreneurs are right on that. One thing that might impact on entrepreneurs 
There's the signals that are coming out from the Bank of England that the financial markets are saying we could get an early interest rate rise even before Christmas. Um, the bank governor, Andrew Bailey, warned of a potentially very damaging period of inflation unless policymakers take action. So firstly, because you're always betting, how soon do you expect <laughs> to see a rise in interest rates? We'll not go back over what right, level the they're bet, going right? to get what's to. What's the bet? Right, so I would just say that um, it's taken Andrew Bailey weeks and weeks and weeks to come up with what I've been saying for weeks and weeks. Right, and it's, it's interesting, we mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, one of the, the, the directors uh, on his committee who stepped down said that the day he stepped down. Right? They actually didn't agree with what the, the committee was saying. The biggest problem that we've got at the moment is, right, experts need scientific data. And at the moment, because of the various things that are going on, we don't have scientific data. So there's some amount of guesstimating going on. If you think, just think about Andrew Bailey's statement, he's completely changed his tune for four weeks ago. Right. And he's an expert. So we listen to this guy, we hang on to every word and we think, right, okay, but we're sitting here in, you know, in the real world none. There's no chance if inflation goes to four or five percent, whatever, that the bank can retain interest rates at 0.5. It's just impossible. So I, I think that um a part of the whole Brexit thing, all the things that we're just talking about just now. Really, and, and, and I'm, I don't like saying it, but there's, there's, there's definitely the makings here of the perfect storm heading into Christmas. So just holding you to the point, before Christmas, are we going to, is that our Christmas present, an interest rate before Christmas? Oh, 100%. Or into the year? All right, would, do you would, agree, Tom? Before Christmas, or can we at least get through Christmas? <laughs> bah humbug, yeah. Um, well, we're not going to get a turkey, we're not going to get a toys, are we going to get an interest rate rise? My goodness, what a brilliant prospect. So, I'm not as worried as Willie. I think there might be 25 bit rise. So what? I think I, I told you last week when I was starting, I was paying the Royal Bank of Scotland 18%. I mean, now that was in, in a long time ago. So entrepreneurs today, you know, what they pay in, you know, one over base, it's, it's nothing. If your business can't survive um, a 25-bit rise, you're in the wrong business. So therefore, I'm not as worried as Willie. I think there will be a rate rise, but entrepreneurs get on with it. Well, what would it mean for businesses that have taken on huge debt amidst the pandemic? Because for them... Even a marginal increase could be the difference between, you know, survival or going bust, Willie. Think about the people who have enjoyed the low mortgage rates. So if you think about it at the moment, I think you can get a mortgage at 2.7%. So it's about 2.2 above the base, which is kind of the normal. And all these people are all used to paying that amount of money, right? It's only going to take a 2% rise over the next year or so, 2.2, for people to pay in double what they're used to paying for their mortgage. And that is going to have a much bigger effect than what, you know, businesses that have borrowed to do whatever they're going to do. So I don't see, I, I don't see interest rates going you know, through the roof and not nowhere near 18%. But I can definitely see interest rates, you know, going above the, the, the kind of 2.5% that people are saying where it might go. And I'm definitely saying that I'm thinking we'll have a 
0.5% increase before Christmas. That's what I think. But this this is a, a, a real worry for the people who have been used to cheap money. We, we know, we've lived through cycles where you know, it was great to get uh, borrow money under double digit. You know, but people are used to borrowing for their houses at, at a very low rate and it's, it's a real wake-up call. And i tell you what it will do as well. All the boom that we're seeing at the moment in houses, there'll, there'll be a correction there. Yeah, so what impact do you think it'll have on the housing market, Tom? Because we are seeing people paying well over uh, the asking price and the home reports. Uh, it's just anybody I know is trying to get a house is struggling, the amount of money. In. The number one thing and when you're looking to buy a house is the availability of mortgage finance and the right price. And yes, I agree with Willie on this one for a domestic household, a 1% rise will make a difference um, because people have got used to cheap money. And is it the end of cheap money? I don't think it is. I, I don't see it getting to 5%. I, don't, I just don't see it because it, it would affect so many things, Willie. And I think governments here can affect, they're supposed to be separated from the Bank of England, but they have a big influence on it. And therefore, are they going to put that up and then it sucks money out of the economy? And remember next year, we've got a few headwinds coming our way. We've got the NI coming out of people's pockets and employers' pockets. We've got rates coming back on to the high street, but they've been turned off. We've got the VAT rate and hospitality going back up. I think it's went one step, Willie, now it's going yes. further next year back to where it was. So there's quite a lot coming out the consumer's pockets next year without a rate increase. Willie? I don't know if you've seen it this week. There's a report that 10,000 outlets, pubs, restaurants, nightclubs, bars will not reopen after, after the furlough scheme. Right, I don't want to mention the places, but I drove past two places last night in, in Glasgow to well-known restaurants that are not opening, not opening. So that's just the Glasgow part. So if you take the whole of the UK and you take every street in the, in the high street, you know, at the moment they're saying there's 1.5 million vacancies and Grant Sharp's been saying on the TV all this week when he's been wheeled out in front of the cameras that we're still the fastest growing, you know, in the G7, blah, blah. All of this is, is about to, I believe, come to an end. And in terms of just bringing it back to housing, when do you think that'll filter through? Is it, are we going to see the bubble burst after April? Is that, you know, if you're going to buy a house better to wait until autumn ne next year? No. I think you'll see it in the second quarter of next year. Same yeah, quarter. I still think there's enough demand uh, and they, obviously the big house builders have got a whole you know, marketing campaign. Get people tied up right now. You know, I'm, I'm hearing of sites with 50 houses being you know, 46 sold in 45 minutes, all at a premium. Um, so I still think there's a, there's a bit to go there, but when we do get there in the second quarter of next year, absolutely there'll be a correction. As someone with a thousand acres just outside Edinburgh, I hope you're wrong, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> well, all these talk of housing crashes and perfect storms, Rishi Sunak has also been signalling that he's impatient to fix the public finances. Is that not a bit <laughs> premature, as in 2010, with the recovery not yet secured and all these things about hit us? 
Well, it'd be interesting that he's saying that at a time when his leader, his boss, is out <laughs> last week telling you we're going to create this new highly paid, great jobs economy. By the way, without any substance. So I would love to see Richie's plan for, you know, how he is desperate to get back to fix the finances of the country. I'd love to see it. I'd love him to share it with us. Oh, you think he's a good operator, Tom, so come on. Fan now, club. It's a fan club. Now, just remember, just remember, I'm <laughs> not a Tory. First. I'm yeah, not a Tory. Well, well, just remind all our listeners, you're not a Tory, but you're too late. We with all know our colours. <laughs> Willie is green and red, you're blue. I'm a neutral. And I'm neutral. <laughs> so, what do you think? You're well, only first, neutral when you want to be. So, <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so, first of all, you know, it isn't a government who creates the jobs. It's entrepreneurs, Willie. It's it's you out there toiling away, creating the jobs. So a government, a prime minister, does not create the jobs. All we want from a government is to set the playing field, have a decent tax rate, decent way for businesses to go and do what they do best. Now, Sunak is a different character to Boris. So he does understand, he comes from the real world of business, he's been there and he understands it. What I would say is, you know, of course you want to balance the books, but, and I think we said it right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was amazed that in 2006 we only paid off the Second World War borrowing. So this needs to be a 50-year view um, because the pandemic has been such a seismic event and therefore he's not going to do it in the the duration of this parliament. That would be a folly. We'll be paying this off for a long time to come. So let's encourage businesses. Let's encourage them to make money and then those businesses pay tax on profits but allow them to earn the profits. Really? I would say that the finance minister, Kate Forbes, has an absolute fantastic opportunity here to show that Scotland could be smarter than the rest because at the moment all we're hearing from London is sound bites. And I think that we are small enough if we can get clever enough people in a room to come up with ideas. I'll, I'll give you an example. People are talking about heat pumps, right? You know, this because this is the way to go forward. We mentioned it before, right? And the idea was, oh, let's manufacture heat pumps. Taiwan and the, the Far East would beat us all day long, right, in manufacturing these things, beat us themselves. But what we can do is, we should be sitting down just now, we're talking about energy. We, we should have a master plan just now about planting trees so we can have timber. A hundred percent, I've mentioned it before, why can we not be a major manufacturer and supplier of insulation, which is going to be huge demand? Brick. You know, let's go to a couple of the brickworks that we've got in Scotland at the moment. Let's help them buy the latest technology. Steel. You know, we've given a guy £500 million, we believe, and we're not getting the best bang for our buck. Let's see about how we can get a hold of these factories and see if we can produce steel. These are the things that we're going to need. These are the things that other people are going to need where you could export thousands, millions of tonnes of steel if we could produce that in supply at the moment. So I'm saying to the finance minister in Scotland and to the Scottish government, as Tom says... Let's, instead of sitting around and moping and moaning about what the problems are, I think if you get clever enough people in a room, let's feed into these people, but know what we need more than anything. Here's the message. Action. 
let's stop talking about it. I've been involved in too many think tanks where we all have great ideas, right, but nothing happens. Let's get into the construction hub at Hamel, get Steve Good, let's get Steve on the programme, right, and say, Steve, what can we do to help you be relevant? You know, what can, what, what can we see that has been great? What's come out of that? The investment in new technology, what can we do to help you get people to grasp it? But, but I definitely think that Boris is talking rubbish, absolute rubbish in relation to let's build this brand new economy, just sound bites, no, no substance, not a thing's been printed in any paper, I've been buying all the English-based papers after I got my Herald. Of course. Right? <laughs> of right? course. To see award-winning any Herald. substance behind what you said, not a line. Well, I'll just take you back, you talked about what we need is action, and your man... Rishi Sunak, Tom. He's not my man, come on. Oh, I'm afraid for the purposes of this show, yeah, he is. He's um, been a bit disappointing when it comes to business rates because it looks like he's going to postpone wholesale reforms. Whereas you've got Rachel Reeves, of course, in Labour, is saying she's going to be taking instant action if they were in power. And that's the one thing you can backtrack on, we'll definitely not be Tom's man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, and I don't know who said it, but it's very easy to have sound bites in opposition. <laughs> well, is this an understandable delay or do you think we really no, need to tackle it now? It's not an understandable delay. You know, we've had people on the show, we've had Theopathetus on talking about the high street and rates is one of the biggest costs that people on the high streets have. It's an antiquated tax. It was a tax which used to, I used to pay when 100% of my sales went through a high street shop. There was no e-commerce back in the day. And now, you know, 30, 40, sometimes 50% of a company's revenues will go through e-commerce, but they still pay 100% business rates. That cannot be right. Now, this is a nettle. It's a stingy nettle to grasp because it's, it's a big... Um, tax it brings in a lot it's bringing in a lot less and it it needs tackled is Richie going to do it I'm 50-50 or is it just a sound bite from Labour will Rachel do it I think it's the usual uh, um, you know the, the Tories will make a statement and then they'll sit down and go back and once the dust clears and they look at what the implications of that are financially then they'll backtrack you know so it was like you know it's the first time we've been live in a conference let's make it you know let's all be rock stars you know and uh, give the people what they want but it doesn't matter next week when we, you know, when they can't switch their gas on or they can't feed themselves I, I think that he will backtrack on this so we need to get Rachel Reeves in, in there we'll make sure that she delivers on what she says I think at the Go Radio business lunch Willie's going to come as Ebenezer Scrooge <laughs> <laughs> well, talking of tax rates of course corporate tax rates the OECD or the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development to give its full title just brokered an international deal to ensure large companies will pay a minimum of 15% corporate tax. The UK rate is 19 and it's planning to rise to 25%. Does it go far enough? Well, is this good for us or bad for us? I, I am all about having a competitive advantage with regard to tax. And I look just across the sea to Southern Ireland and they've built a terrific economy the way they got it kick-started was a low 
corporation tax. But they were cleverer because they made the jobs sticky. Now, what do I mean by that? So they made companies coming into Ireland who would benefit from a lower tax rate, they made them um, employ, they spoke to universities, they made universities um, come out with courses where they were producing terrific graduates who could get into a job straight away. And Southern Ireland now is a highly paid economy, highly skilled economy, and those companies now can't really leave, even if they wanted to, as the tax rate will go up. I actually thought that was a blueprint for Scotland at one time. I don't think anybody's putting it forward anymore, but I liked it. What about the plans to tackle the likes of Facebook and Google? It's those companies with sales of at least twenty billion, it's an incredible figure, and profitability of more than ten percent will now pay taxes in the countries where they make the money. Is it about time? It's about time. Um, you know, they employ huge tax departments and clever people working out, oh, where's the where's the place with the least tax and you know they take all the revenue through transfer pricing and put it into some British Virgin Island, which which is ridiculous. So this is a good move from that point of view. If these big companies are doing business in the UK, they should be paying their tax in the UK. Willie? I think a global tax rate would be a fantastic idea. Whether it's going to be workable or not, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you, there'll be a few people having sleepless nights about it. There'll be a few countries having sleepless nights about it as well. The Pandora Papers are out. Ireland will be one of them. Well, I can't be remiss of me if I didn't mention Boris, who's just back, obviously, from his wee trip to Marbella, doing a bit of painting. From your point of view, a well-deserved break or a mistimed holiday? Was it painting and decorating he was doing? I, I, I must have missed that. If it was painting and decorating, somebody else was paying for it. Listen, oh, oh, listen, listen, I have no problem with, you know, people taking a holiday. People need to be at the top of their game. And um, I am sure when he's on holiday, he's still keeping in touch with the office, just like Willie and I yeah. do. Yeah. Willie... Do you think we've got to be fair on Boris? He deserves a holiday. Yeah, come on, Wally. I, I think Boris should get a long, long holiday <laughs> uh, on the proviso that he doesn't get in touch with the office. Oh, you know, I yeah. think the, the longer the break we get for Boris, the better. Yeah, but you know, no, every, everybody's due a holiday. But it's interesting every time he goes on holiday, it's always to somebody else's house. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. But coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Simon Hanna, Chief Executive of award-winning wholesalers, J.W. Philzill. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. By business for business. Welcome back as we are joined by the Chief Executive of JW Philsill, Simon Hanna. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. But before we chat to Simon, in the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots, we tell the story of Sir Isaac Wolfson. Sir Isaac Wolfson was a Scottish businessman and noted philanthropist, the son of a cabinet maker and one of 13 children. Wolfson was born and raised in the Gorbals area of Glasgow. 
Isaac attended Glasgow's Queen's Park School, but left at age 14 to work with his father, first making furniture and later as a travelling salesman. By 1920, Wilson had moved to London. There he began selling clocks and other household items. His big break came when attending a trade fair in Manchester. He met George Rose, who together with his brothers Abraham and Jack, owned a mail-order retailer called Universal Stores, soon to be renamed Great Universal Stores, or GUS as it was more commonly known. So enamoured with the brothers with Wolfson, they promptly ordered 500 clocks from him. From there, the relationship grew, and in 1932, Wolfson was appointed managing director of GUS. But hard times would soon follow, and the company found itself in a perilous financial state. After one of the most difficult periods in the company's history, help would soon come in the shape of Wolfson's new father-in-law, who owned a chain of movie theatres. He would lend just enough money to get GUS back to where it was, and gladly accepted shares in return. In the years that followed, Wilson would gain financial control of the company, and so astute were his financial skills, the business would go from a loss of £55,000 in 1932 to a profit of £330,000 just one year later. Wolfson soon had GUS buyouts over 200 other retailing firms, with nearly 3,000 outlets under his control. Diversification followed in the shape of banking, insurance, real estate and transport. By the end of World War II, the company was valued at £16 million, the equivalent of over £1 billion in today's money. Philanthropy was at the heart of all of Wolfson's activities. In fact, he was almost as well known for giving his money away as he was for making it. In 1955, he established the Wolfson Foundation, which funded projects connected to education, health and young people in the UK. By the 60th anniversary of the Wolfson Foundation, it had distributed some £800 million in grants to more than 10,000 projects. Remarkably, Wolfson is one of only three men to have colleges named after him at Oxford and Cambridge. The other two, Jesus and St John. Wolfson died in 1991 at the age of 93, but like so many other great philanthropists, his legacy will and truly lives on. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. All the best people seem to come from the Gorbals, Willie. Absolutely, and he's one of the greatest examples. It's funny, I believe that he was born and raised about 500 yards from the studio round in Abbotsford Place. Wow. Yeah. And if you think about it, when you hear the story here, this was your, you know, the first of of what Jeff Bozos is trying to do today. I mean, he was the online king, the guy who made the catalogue what it was, you know, uh, know, Gus. But I think that the the Isaac Wilson story, and Tom talks about Carnegie, he, he was our Carnegie in Scotland. You know, I think it mentioned here, obviously, there's buildings named after him in some of the most prestigious universities in England. I think there's about four buildings in Glasgow yeah. and the universities uh, and the hospitals that are called after him. I mean, quite incredible to have given 800 million in donations, you know, by the 60s. It's, just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. What, what a man, what a man. What a man indeed, Tom. A Gorbals boy on the make. Uh, who does that remind you of, Donald? Um, oh, idea. It's a fantastic <laughs> story and just a wee anecdote about GUS. When when I first when I took my first shop, so I'd been going five years in other people's shops and I'd built up enough money to take my first lease and it was 35A High Street in Paisley, all 300 square feet of it. And the shop was owned by GUS and I was saying, who is Gus? Gus, who, who is this? And I had to look into it, Willie. 
and they wanted a personal guarantee from me. And I I just signed anything because I, I was staying with my mum and dad. <laughs> I had nothing <laughs> yes. to lose. And so I signed a personal guarantee for 35A High Street, Paisley. And when I sold the business some 24 years later, I was still on the hook for the personal guarantee and um, it was one of the last things that Dave Whelan at JJB, he wouldn't let me off the personal guarantee. Tom's mum and dad had to live in a caravan for 22 years. <laughs> but fantastic story. What what an amazing thing to be about in those times and the pioneering spirit. And then to give his money away, a true hero. Shiny example of what an entrepreneur should be. Well, talking of great Scots, we're delighted now to welcome Simon Hanna, the Chief Executive of the award-winning wholesalers J.W. Philzill, probably better known for their key store brand. So thanks for joining us, Simon, and congratulations on a fantastic night at the Glasgow Business Awards last Thursday. Tell us about that success first. Listen, we were fortunate enough to pick up three awards um, at the Glasgow Business Awards last week. Absolutely phenomenal achievement and I guess getting wide recognition for the efforts that all the guys have put in over the last 18 months and, and the guys were absolutely made up you know I think it was brilliant to win three awards but for us to pick up the mental health and wellness award I think that really resonated with with all the people and everyone back at the round so we're absolutely delighted and incredibly proud. It was great because the other awards were the family business of the year and of course, the most prestigious accolade of the night, most outstanding business. What do you think set you apart from that very, very strong shortlist? You should probably ask the judges that first. But, you know, from our perspective, we had a record year of growth um, servicing convenience stores. We had to, to really react quickly to, to that increased shopper demand. So we grew the business both in terms of turnover and profit in the, in the past 12 months. So I guess that would have contributed. But I think the overall positioning of building a 10-year strategy in the middle of COVID when we've never been busier, um, creating a wellness and mental health program for all of our colleagues to align to, I think maybe might have been the things that, that, that tipped us over the line there. Well, we'll come back to your 10-year strategy and what you're doing in terms of mental health. But tell us a bit about the history of the company and then your own journey from when you joined 22 years ago. Well, I think we've only got a short time, so I'll kind of <laughs> narrow this down a wee bit if I can. But yeah, the company was established um, in 1875, manufacturing confectionery in the Gallagate in Glasgow back in the day. And you know, they used to deliver everything by horse and cart and everything was handmade. And one of the most unique selling points at that point was was machine-made toffees. And, and that's an incredible thing because everything's gone full circle now and it's all about handmade again. So it's amazing how that cycle changes. The business then moved out to Paisley um, and we were down in Shinnan Road for many years. And then the business grew in such a way that, that the focus became more about distribution as opposed to manufacturing. And we moved to our current site in Hillington in the 90s. Um, so that is a whistle-stop tour through four generations. I joined the business uh, 22 years ago. I was at university in Edinburgh, more focused on playing rugby than studying. 
Unfortunately, my mum and dad found out about that and I got dragged into the business um, <laughs> as a punishment to help fill up the shelves in the warehouse. And, you know, I guess 22 years later, I haven't got around to working out what I want to do when I grow up, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I took over um, from my dad t- 12 years ago, in fact, after having worked in every department in the business, from loading lorries to packing shelves to the commercial team, the sales team, and, you know, found myself in the hot seat when my dad retired 12 years ago. Simon, can I ask you about, because we've talked on the show with many guests about family business and the importance of family business to the Scottish economy. So, so you're, I mean, when did you say it, it, it started? 1875. Wow. Right. So have you got family? Yeah. And would you want them to carry on or how how do you deal with it about succession? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And um you know, wholesale is an interesting business. Um, there are many wide and varied roles within wholesale. I guess my kids, my brother's kids, my sister's kids are, are, are lucky in the fact that they've got a choice. And, you know, they can come into the business, you know, they can be involved in HR or IT or operations. Or My job is, is to get the business ready for the next generation. And if any of them come into the business, then fantastic. If not, then the business will continue with somebody somebody running it. But the kids are all little. You know, my eldest is 17. Right, okay. My sister's youngest is is a year old. So there's, there's plenty of time to, to work all that out. Because just a, a plug for succession with Brian Cox is coming back on the TV. If Now, that's not the way to run a family business if anybody's seen it. Season three happens next week. Um, but if you haven't seen it, it's well worth. Brian Cox from Dundee in the lead role, brilliant. But don't run a family business that way. Yeah. <laughs> Simon, I've actually got a connection with Phil. So back in the 70s as a young engineer, I remember many a day stuck in one of your big freezer rooms changing a fan motor. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get paid well? I used to work for a, a, a company, Turner Refrigeration, and you used to use them for to do other repairs. So I remember um, very well being locked in some of the cold rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, back in Paisley, we had an ice cream business yeah. at the time, so it's probably, yeah. probably there. It was in Paisley, yeah. Yeah. You talked earlier about the fact that you've got a 10-year strategy. Can you give us a bit more about your vision for the future? Yeah, so we realised quite early on in COVID that this maybe wasn't going to just last a few weeks. Um, every one of our staff had friends, family who'd been furloughed. There was a lot of uncertainty around. And one of the things that we felt was really important to us as a business was to be able to articulate what the future looked like you know, having stability of work and and confidence that there's a plan post-COVID, I think, was really, really important to to the business. And, you know, that that was an interesting process because we kicked that off in June when demand was never never greater. Um, But we felt it was really, really important to secure that thinking and get everybody involved in that process. So ultimately, you know, the board got together for a couple of days in a dark room and we came up with a plan that we wanted to double the size of the business by the 1st of February 2031. And we then went out to all the managers and articulated what that vision looked like. Um, And then we asked them to come back in a couple of weeks and present what they've done. So today's date is the 1st of February 2031. What did you do in your department in the last 10 years to get us to where we got to? And we had some amazing ideas and 
you know, the guys consulted with their teams and some some brilliant ideas of people that's worked in the business for for many years. So we came up with the the ten year the ten year target. We then created a three year picture and a one year plan. And that one year plan is then subsequently broken into four ninety day bursts. So it's all about creating. You know, you've got this huge big number at the top end, but actually what are the small steps we need to take to get to that? And and what is everybody accountable for? And how do we drive this to, to a point where, where everybody's clear? And it, listen, it was a great experience doing it. We presented it to every single colleague in the business. You know, if you bump into any of our guys and ask them what our 10-year target is, they'll be able to tell you what that is. And, and that's that's... Much, you know, very focused on on building, you know, engagement and and pride and and being part of our business. And I think going back to being a family business, it allows us to to be able to do that. Fantastic. That's, that's an interesting story. I've just been through an exercise myself where, for the first time in the history of my company, we've been going for thirty six years, that I've allowed the senior management team for them to write the the business plan for the next ten years. I had no input whatsoever. And uh, I spoke to all my guys in Australia yesterday and what I've done is I've given them an incentive. You know, it's kind of a long-term incentive plan for them. But it was uh, it was a bit strange for me to sit back and see what other people thought of where the business could go in 10 years. I have to say, the the bigger ideas and better ideas for me in the business, so I'm delighted to let them go on with it. <laughs> Did you find that as the positive engagement? Have you got the right culture within the business to drive it forward? Listen, family businesses have... Good cultures typically, you know, they can plan long term, they can make decisions for the benefit of their colleagues, not delivering shareholder value within a very tight window. You know, they, these things make life much easier in terms of in terms of that. You know, our values are very clear. We make all of our decisions in our business based on our core values. All of our appraisals are based on alignment to, to our core values. So that's really important and, and we recruit on that basis. You know, we might have somebody who maybe doesn't have the necessary skills to do the job, but they've got a great attitude and they're, they're aligned to our values. These are the types of people that we want to, to bring into our business. And that is about being proud of the Phil Show family and always looking to improve and going the extra mile for our colleagues and our customers. And, and the last thing is about doing the right thing. And that's that brings back to, to the culture of who we are as people and who we are as a business. It's not just about the business having an identity. It's about every single touch point with our business having their own individual identities aligned to our values. Simon, I'm, I'm delighted that you, you were helping us out with Scottish Edge and then you became a board member, which I'm absolutely delighted about and what struck me about you and, and your own business is you you really are strong on the people the culture taking care of them how do you keep yourself current and how do you get your thinking to lead a family business because sometimes we'll say well, well families can be insular but you seem to have a much wider view of things how do you do that Listen, I'm lucky because I've got some phenomenal people within the business that make the business happen. You know, as part of this review, we created what we call an accountability chart. So every department um, is, or individual is responsible for five things. And part of that process was about, you know, what is my role now as, as the CEO of the business? You know, who's dealing with the operational side? Who's dealing with the finance, the commercial, the sales? Everyone has accountability for these things. And, and my role now is about innovation and diversification, um, culture, values and, and growth. And 
that's where I spend my time. And listen, I've been lucky to to get involved in a number of things. I had a fantastic business coach when I first took over from my dad, uh, a chap called James Andrew, um, who was the president of the chamber at Glasgow um, for a few years. And he was fantastic because I knew everything about the operational side of the business, but I had no idea how to run a business. And from the very first meeting when I met James, he said, right, okay, how do we get you from being a great manager to an outstanding leader? And that was written at the top of every single page, every time we met. And that really helped me on that journey about trying to get out of the content and get into context. And so so James was instrumental in helping me with that. I think this is a really good point. And for anyone listening, you know, who's running a family business, I can certainly say that um, it's a lonely place. And to listen to your story here, you're obviously very structured. You know, you, you know you're kind of run PLC disciplines. It sounds like Six Sigma all over the place. You've got all the bases covered. But I think that it's really important that people do look outside for that inspiration. And obviously you said that, you know, James Andrew helped you. I know some of the things that I, some of the business books I read earlier, some of the people I spoke to, some of the, the biggest learning for me was dealing with customers and seeing how big time chief execs like Alan Layton and Archie Norman and watched how they operated. I'll never forget once when uh, we first started dealing with Asda back in the day when I thought I was really working hard until one day I had to spend the day with the chief executive of Asda and realised that I was part-time. <laughs> you know, he, he picked me up at 5.30 in the morning and we had meetings every few hours all across the country where we met 240 store managers in one day and we were running out of room grabbing a sandwich and a, and a glass of water. So I, I think it's fantastic to hear that, but, you know, what you've picked up and obviously been part of the, the, the YPO, I, I think that this is a, a great um, learning for, for anyone listening that's in a family business um, is to get that outside inspiration and help and mentoring, I think, is invaluable. Yeah, and I, listen, I've read a lot of these books and a lot of these books are quite American. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's trying to work out how, you know, a community of employees in Glasgow could relate to some of this stuff. And much of this structure has all been based around a book called Traction, written by a guy called Gino Wickman. And we're following that process, and it's um, it's it's a it's very simple, and it's easy to follow, and it, it breaks it into smaller smaller pieces. So um, I'm going to write that down, Simon. So it was traction by traction. Gino yeah. Wickman, yeah. and I would recommend anyone yeah. to read it. I like yeah, the book. I think for any family business, no reading good to great and built to last are two books that you, obviously you can't you know you can't let leave out I think uh, that they're two things they, they, they taught me so much and then obviously I learned so much from that running a family business especially the things not to do <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll touch on uh, the things not to do uh, in just a moment but you're listening to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey more chat later with Simon Hanna, Chief Executive Officer of JW Philzill Limited next. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Insight, advice and guidance into the world of business. This is the Go Radio Business Show and we're chatting to Simon Hanna, Chief Exec of JW Philzill Limited. I notice you've got plans for a new, huge custom-built distribution centre over in Renfrew and looking to move in in early 2022. That's an incredible investment. What brought it about and what are you trying to achieve? 
Uh, listen, it's all linked to to our bigger picture plans. You know, if we're going to try and grow and double the size of our business, we need the physical infrastructure to be able to do this. You'd be hard hard pushed to find a, a lower margin sector in any industry than wholesale. So, so efficiency is absolutely critical to a business like ours making any money. We think that there's two ways to make money: is one, hopefully, selling the products we buy for a little bit more than we pay for them, and the other one is around being supremely efficient. And efficiency is is where we can we can generate profits and, and sustainable investment into the business going forward. You know, this will be revolutionary for the business. Currently, we're operating on out of a number of different storage depots to have all of our stock in one place, 120,000 square feet, um, 10,000 pallet capacity. It's going to be an exciting opportunity for, for us to, to not only, you know, develop our existing business with community stores all over the country, but also for us to be able to look for new business opportunities. How difficult is it to modernise a 140-year-old business? Listen, every generation has had to modernise and keep the business relevant during their tenure. And I guess it's my turn now to try and do that. You know, there's never been greater advances in technology. It's actually much easier for me because we can now analyse data. We can use data to help us make decisions. You know, how my dad grew the business without the data sources that are available would be would be um, testament to, to the skill that he had and, and you know, the, the, the other family members in terms of growing that. So data is important. Technology is important. You know, looking at how we drive efficiency, looking at how we add value. You know, there's a whole wave of artificial intelligence that, you know, we're only scraping the sides of. We've got to look at our supply chain upstream with our suppliers. We've got to look at it downstream to our customers. Um, you know, so so it is about modernization. We're very lucky because we've got a 140-year-old balance sheet and that allows us to be able to, <laughs> you know, go after opportunities and have a go at stuff and make a few mistakes. But, you know, the risk profile is less when you've you've got that type of support. And, you know, our, you know by and large, we sell the same products as multi-billion turnover competitors. You know, so we have to find a right to survive, and that is about innovation being fast in our feet and, you know, modernizing faster than some of these big structured companies are, are able to do. And that's where we find a unique position for, for the fail show business. Simon, we were t- talking earlier about the supply chain and some of the issues and some of the warnings or scaremongering, depending on your, your, your views. What are you seeing at the moment in relation to, is there a shortage of goods? Is it more difficult at the moment to, to, to get what you need? Yeah, well, I think there's sort of two elements to this. So we deal with some of the biggest brands in the world, you know, the Heinekens, the Coca-Colas, the Mars, the Mondelez. So these guys have production facilities all over Europe, all over the world. So, yeah, there are delays in, in you know, getting product. You know, our lead times have almost doubled. So we're having to try and increase our stock holding to take into consideration that the deliveries inbound would be, you know, further delayed than ordinarily they might be. Um, but yeah, there are issues. There's there's issues with aluminium, with CO2, you know, the recent one around fuel and driver shortages. These are all things that, that we have to deal with. And they're things that have been around before. Um, and I think looking at 
how do we actually stop this happening again? How do we get better at forecasting? How do we provide visible data from the supplier all the way to the shopper to try and mitigate some of these things rather than just sort of battling through? That's what you have to do and the, the immediacy of the challenges there. But how do we fix that problem so that it doesn't repeat in the future? And I think... You know, these are lots of challenges. We're building a new warehouse and we're not just talking about shortage of beer coming into the to the business. We're talking about, you know, rising costs of steel and concrete and labor force. And, and these are all things that are very real in every industry at the moment. You won the Best for Health and Wellbeing Award at the Glasgow Business Awards and you're particularly proud of it. What is it that you're doing there to improve employees' welfare? As a family business, we've always had a very um, active and formal welfare program. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, at the beginning of lockdown, we realized that there was a lot of stress and anxiety, not just from our colleagues, but their friends, their family. So <clears throat> we decided to try and formalize that structure a little bit. And the first thing we did was that we trained um, 20 individuals across the business of every age and stage through the business um, in being mental health first aiders. So we had formal training in place to do that. You know, there's a huge issue around stigma and a huge issue around, you know, opening up and none more so than, than the west of Scotland. And so, so we felt that we had to hit that head on. Um, we created a very active wellness team of about a dozen individuals representative across the business. And we worked out that we needed to focus on six elements of this. So sleep, exercise, social interaction, hobbies and meaningful activities, helping others and stress management. And each of these individuals is, you know, responsible with a buddy for creating activities through the business. And, and that's become a, a, a key factor in, in breaking that stigma down and actually helping improve, you know, the well-being of, of everybody around the business. You know, the mental health first aiders have have skills that they can apply to their colleagues, but more importantly, they can apply it to their family and friends. And well, listen, we all know that when we're happy at home, we're pretty happy at work, and it starts in that order. And I think being able to, you know, provide support to their friends and family, I think has been, been a really important part of, of this process. There's no doubt that, that you know, the next pandemic potentially is around mental health um, and, and we realise that, that that is important and as part of our structure I mentioned earlier about our one year plan being broken into four 90 day bursts every manager has five objectives to land every 90 days the first one is always about mental health and well-being and the second one is always about people development and training and the reasons for that is about a consistent approach that safety and, and mental health and, and well-being is, is the number one objective for the business. Everyone is aligned on that process. And that creates consistency. We've created a calendar of events, whether it's you know mental health awareness week or alcohol awareness week or suicides. You know, there's a whole load of variables. And then every meeting we have. Um, regardless of the context of that meeting, starts off with a mental health check-in. So we go around the room on a scale of 1 to 10, how are you feeling today? And that's a way of individuals putting their hand up and saying, actually, I'm not feeling too good today. And they don't need to articulate it. It's just a number. The beginning when we first started doing this, everyone was 8s and 9s and 10s. But now 
We've got people saying, you know what, I'm a three today or a four. And that's a trigger for somebody within the business to go, hey, listen, Tom, you know, you said you were a four today. You know, can I help you? Do you want to have a chat about this? Or do you want to have a, a formal chat with somebody else? We try and keep it relaxed. We try and keep it to corridor conversations because that's where it feels more authentic and, and more natural to, to have those conversations opening up. So, so Simon, this is an amazing initiative. Was it um, brought on by yourself or you listening to others or how did it come about? It, it was brought on by, by you know, a group of individuals within the business and, and led by our safety and facilities manager, Amanda Casey. So, you know, they came up with a plan and said, we said, listen, we want well-being and safety to be a number one um, priority within our objectives. And they said, actually, we believe it should be something else. Wow. I used to, I, I attended every single one of the wellness meetings and what I loved about it was they asked me not to attend <laughs> because they said there are things in the business that, that I want to talk about with my colleagues, but I don't want you going and speaking to my manager about it. I just want to be able right. to do that. And having that culture where the guys can't ask you to step out, I think is it's very positive. Is is a great thing for us. And and you know that team, it was fantastic. They were all with us um, at the business awards last week, and yeah, it was it was great to see the pride that, that these guys have for what they've taken ownership of. Two years ago, we weren't doing any of this stuff. And in the last year, whilst growing the business by 23%, this has been a real focus as well. So, Do you think it's made a material difference to actually your efficiencies, performance? Or is it just about retaining staff and looking after them? Um, well, listen, I've been around business for 22 years. Um, I've never seen an initiative that's brought a workforce together like this. So... You know, when you talk about labour shortages, um, you know, I think the key to those labour shortages is around retention. And if you look after your people and you create an environment where they don't want to leave, you know, that's what we're aspiring to do. And, and you know, having an engaged workforce that all care about each other is, is you know, the jewel in the crown as far as we're concerned. And in the food supply chain, which you play a big part, Simon, I take it that you wouldn't have many people furloughed during COVID? No, we, we didn't have anybody um, furloughed in, in the retail side of the business. Um, fortunately, we had to furlough a couple of guys that looked after some of our food service and pub customers. Um, but no, listen, it was it was really all hands to the pump in the business through this, this period. What has been the biggest lesson you think you've learned in your 22 years running the business? Um... I think, you know, at the beginning when I first took over from my dad, I mentioned that I'd been involved in every part of the business. I knew how to drive forklifts and reach trucks and all these sort of things. And the biggest mistake that I made at the beginning was was thinking that getting involved in every decision made in the business was the right thing to do. And very quickly, I had created a culture of upward delegation where no decisions were being made. <laughs> And, and actually, that was a, a big problem and it became completely overwhelming. And, and that question that my dad asked me about, who's looking at the horizon? What's the next big thing? And I was like, oh, I'm too busy. I can't, I can't think about that <laughs> stuff. And I think that was kind of the penny drop moment for me was, was actually when you've got a phenomenal group of people that can run the business, it's making sure that you're always in, in context. And, and that, I think, was the biggest learning I had. I thought I was helping, but actually I wasn't. 
I was I was actually becoming more of a hindrance to progress rather than than an enhancement, and I think that's that's probably my biggest learning. And a book about yourself, your key characteristics or traits that you think have made you so successful. Um, listen, I'm a people person. I'm a team player. Um, I like to think I can get the best out of everybody. I, I'm very honest. I'm very open. Um, you know, anyone can come and chat the door if they've got a problem, whether that's a work problem or a home problem. Um, and I think that ability to be able to spend time on the horizon and when you articulate what some of these things look like from, from my head to, to some of the guys, it's energizing. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think those, those key traits of being able to constantly make people th- look a little bit further ahead, I think, has been something that, that, that's worked well for me and my ability to be able to let go of stuff I really enjoy. So I love being involved in all the supplier conversations and some of these things. But as the business becomes more structured, the guys are saying, listen, we don't really want you involved in those conversations. We want you involved in, in some of the major conversations, but, but that's what you pay us to do. And I think that's, that's you know, something that being able to let go of things you love is also quite, um, quite an important trait too. There's a perception of the wholesale sector that uh, it's probably very unkind, this, that you're just box shifters. How do you react to that? <laughs> Um, not I anymore. I that question, by the way, I have to say. So, no, it's not one of mine. I feel really harsh here. It's a Sunday morning. Uh, listen, box shifters, you know, not anymore, I would say. It's it's an interesting sector. And, and I reckon that, that as a wholesale sector, we need to articulate the complexity and the energy involved in our sector. You know, we're dealing with some of the biggest brands in the world that have got global marketing strategies. You know, we focus on data, technology, efficiency there's roles in in the wholesale sector cross category you know marketing finance commercial sales operations it it's an incredibly attractive sector to to get involved in and whilst bo- shifting boxes is one part of our job um <laughs> there's a lot of things that go behind shifting those boxes yeah. <laughs> as you put in your place down yeah. place so i'll make up for it you've had plenty of success so what are you most proud of and why i think um, seeing the resilience and the commitment from the people in our business as well as our key store customers and our customers, you know, providing essential food and drink during a pandemic to communities who were petrified of what they were listening to and what they heard and, you know, being that consistent source of, of support, not just for food and drink and things that people buy, but actually maybe the only contact that some people had during during lockdown, I think, made us really, really proud and, and the role that every wholesaler and independent retailer and retailer aside put into that is, is has been exceptional and it's really made us all realise that that we genuinely are part of the community and, and that's set set a precedent going forward and, and that will accelerate, you know, more. We've had more shoppers visit convenience stores than they ever had. They've been very pleasantly surprised by how competitive the pricing is and the range of products and the local source products around Scotland and yeah I think um, you know that makes me happy that, that we've played a part in that supply chain of feeding communities when, when they needed us most. So Simon we, we talked about your involvement with um, Scottish Edge earlier which I'm delighted about so what do you see um, what more can we do to encourage 
businesses to start and grow in Scotland. You know, the whole reason why he's put the show together is for that purpose. So what do you see out there on the horizon? Well, listen, there's no doubt that Scotland is blessed with possibly the best entrepreneurial ecosystem anywhere in the world. You know, listen, I've travelled to Asia and people ask me, you know, how can, how can Scotland do this? So I think <laughs> we're starting off from a great place. Um, you know, through our 10-year strategy process, we engaged with everybody and asked them for ideas. And, you know, why should it be up to me to come up with the only good ideas? And actually, these guys have worked in, in our place for years and years that they will know best how to fix some of these challenges. They will know yep. best how to remove friction points with, you know, customers or, or suppliers. And, and I think, you know, as business leaders, asking our people to innovate, and that is one of the big challenges when you've had people with very long service in the business, they can only innovate from what they know. And so actually creating environments where people can get experience of stuff that's happening outside of the four walls of the building, you know, you know, so if you can pull both those levers of helping them to help us innovate, create an environment that allows that to happen, and then subsequently being able to, to allow them to take ownership of a project and lead with a project in the business, if there's good ideas there, then we should support that. So I think it's up to, to business leaders to create that environment because I guess if you don't, your people will leave. Yep. It's certainly paying dividends for you with all those awards. Thank you, Simon. After the break, is the board you can't afford, where Tom and Willie answer your business questions and offer brilliant advice. If you want to take part, then simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. If you have any questions you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. We're going to our phone lines and Matthew Walker, the co-founder of Savora Drinks, uh, is up. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks, Donald. How are you? I'm very well. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your business. Yeah, so as you say, I'm the co-founder of Savora Drinks and we create a range of premium mixers for pairing with tequila. So it's similar to how tonic is for pairing with gin. All right. Yeah. So don't tell us a bit, bit more. I am not a tequila drinker, although I haven't in the past, maybe after midnight possibly, <laughs> had some tequila shots. Yeah, quite. So we, we, we kind of have the idea that every spirit has an associated mixer. So you've got your gin and tonics and rum and cokes, but tequila does not. And as you say, Donald, tequila is often written off as a shot. But there's been a real shift in recent years with premium tequilas now finding their place in the UK market. So Savora's here to pair with those premium tequilas and rewrite your tequila story. Great, fantastic. So what's your question for Tom and Willie? Yeah, so both myself and my co-founder are relatively new to the drinks industry. So my question is, how do you go about building credibility in an industry where nobody really knows our name yet? Well, coming on the show is a great start, of course. <laughs> Willie, how can you help? Uh, good morning, Matthew. Morning. Morning. Um, can I ask you, so what do you think is the perfect um, mixer for tequila? 
So our, our first mix is lime and agave, Willie. And what's ideal about that is that agave is the sole ingredient of tequila. So it's almost like it's been made from, for perfection from the start. Right. And do people out there, is, is that already out there or are you just trying to make this? Yeah, so we launched we launched in April. We've got around 25 stockists at the moment and a great taste award under our belt. Well, what was that? Come on, there's a chance to plug your business. What was the great taste award then? Um, so it's a, a competition where you can kind of enter your, your products each year and uh, we, we were lucky enough to be one of the winners this year and uh, we've also got a, a Scotland-specific food award coming up uh, which we're hopefully winning as well. We'll keep our fingers crossed for you. Can, can I ask you, Matthew, so it, please forgive my ignorance here, so is, is tequila sales on the rise even in Scotland? Yeah, definitely. So we're seeing that tequila has been the second fastest growth spirit in the UK for the past few years now, wow. uh, second only to gin. And, you know, gin was previously seen as that kind of old man's drink. And, and uh, as Donald alluded to, tequila's got this perception of it's just a shot. But I think there's a real uh, opportunity here to change perceptions. Yeah, because you can't get much of a mixer in a shot. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and, and do you think, that, well, uh, here's, here's, here's my answer to your question. So how do you get your name out there? It's the usual, when you're coming up with something quirky at the moment, obviously in its infancy it's quirky, then obviously the best thing to do is to try and get a big name behind it. So, you know, <coughs> if you get one of the football players or an actor or, you know, I'm going to say, you know, if you get Martin Comston, you know, uh, you know uh, plugging it for you, I think, you know, social media opens up a whole new way of getting your name out there. I yeah. think that, you know, I, I don't want you to get you steal people's ideas, but have a good look at what Brewdog do, mm-hmm. you know, and, and see how they come up with quirky ways of, of people paying attention to your adverts and what have you. And I think that that's certainly a way, especially, you know, this is a new, modern, you're, you're looking to a young audience here. They'll be well tuned into everything in social media. So I would try to come up with something quirky that gets you noticed. That's great. Thanks, Willie. Do you have a marketing team or what, how big's your staff? So it, it's just me and my co-founder at the moment. So uh, we're wearing lots of different hats. Yeah. Indeed, that must be tough. So who is one of you as the creative genius then? Um, I, we both take our turns. Uh, my co-founder tends to do TikTok and I take the rest of social media. And, and how do you source your ingredients? Um, so they're actually sourced by a company in Glasgow called Who Knows um, and they freshly juice our limes for us and then it's bottled within the week, so really fresh. Yeah, and you get no problems at the moment with the whole supply chain issues? No, no issues for us currently. We've got a, another production run coming up in a couple of weeks, so I'll let you know if anything changes there. So if someone was going to buy, it, would it, you know, is it Savora that's the brand on the bottle? Or what? Correct, yes. Yeah, okay. so, so it's it's Savora, the brand on the bottle. Um, we've got about 25 bars across the UK, and mainly in, in Edinburgh at the moment. Yeah. Um, and we're actually the best-selling cocktail in Chukta's Landing in Leith. Yeah, excellent. Tom talked earlier about, uh, on our show, about Scottish Edge, and he's always a big champion for that. If memory serves me right, weren't you a finalist yes. in the Scottish Edge Young Edge category? Tell us a wee bit about that. Correct. And has it made a difference? Yeah, so I'm going to be a finalist actually in this year's competition and I'll, I'll be pitching in a, about a month's time now. So really hopeful of um, getting a good result there. And, and what is the financial first prize in that one? 
So there's two prizes for 15,000, and then I believe it's 12 prizes for 10,000. So out of 20 finalists, there's an incredible opportunity to, to get things going here. Right. Well, so Tom's it, giving you a big thumbs up there, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. best of luck. Is he stuffing a biscuit in his mouth, yeah? <laughs> uh, can, I, can I say to you, and obviously that money would help, you know, big time in order for you to help marketing. Yeah, definitely. So the idea is kind of uh, add an additional mixer to our range. So then we've got a complete range of three mixers and then invest the rest in marketing and, and getting the name out there. Yeah. One of the ingenious things that I thought that Fevertree done was that in all their marketing, they made the big, big point that the, you know, that the, the additive was three times as much as the the alcohol, so they yes. thought that the supplement had to be. Much, it's 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 um it's important that that is of high quality. I thought it was a great bit of marketing. Correct. Yeah. yeah it was, if three quarters of the drinks you mix yes. mix with the best, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and, and they're quite right. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, Schweppes was dominant in that market, but they came in and, and disrupted yeah. it. And, and and hopefully yeah. we can do a similar thing with other spirits. Brilliant. Well, good luck with that, and 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 keep in touch. Let us know how you got on with the edge. And, uh, and and let us know how the company is growing. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Good luck. Right. Best Cheers. of luck. Thanks, Matthew. Bye. Got an interesting email question here. Uh, it's been reported that savers invest a thousand pounds in premium bonds. We'll have to wait. Wait for this. Three thousand five hundred years for a fifty-fifty chance of winning. Even worse, to have a chance of pocketing the top one million pound prize. According to a data scientist, you'd have to wait 3.2 million years. Does that surprise you? And more importantly, where should we invest, say, that £1,000 to get the best return? Well, it's interesting looking at these statistics. Um, I would think if you had £1,000 in the bank for 3.2 million years, <laughs> there's a good chance <laughs> that you'd have a million pounds. Um, but this is staggering. I've got to be honest with you. Um, I've never had a premium bond. I think back in the day, it was something that your grand or granddad would buy you, you know, and that you could put in the bank. And they they were under the impression that you wouldn't use it or you wouldn't cash it in, and it would do you for you know one of these things in case of emergency, break glass. I can use it. I don't think anyone ever. It used to be safe. I think it used to give you a guaranteed. Like back in the day, like maybe you get two percent or something, whatever on it. But I think that. Uh, it isn't certain some uh, something that I have bought for anyone. I've never used it. And now, reading the statistics, I won't be rushing out to buy any. Yeah, I'll be questioning the ones I look at my mum and dad's got for, for me way back in time. And I was like, oh, it's a good chance I'm going to win something. And I read this. I'm just like, why don't you just stick it in a savings account? Uh, never mind. Um, another interesting one. Danish billionaire Anders Poulsen, who's the owner of the Fashion Empire bestseller, He's rewarding his 17,000 staff with an extra month's wages and it's going to cost him £34 million. So the question that's been given to you both is what's the best way to motivate staff and any examples where someone has got it spectacularly right and wrong? Good question. Um, there's no doubt that the financial incentive to the staff uh, is a boost. Um, but I think, in my experience, that there's much more you can do than just enticing people with more money. I think the the first thing you can do is make sure that you they're appreciated, but more importantly, that you care. 
that you care about them and you, you've you got a complete understanding. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I sent guys out to do a survey among all our cleaners a couple of years ago and uh, I wanted them to ask, you know, you know, what's what's the biggest problem? And you wouldn't be, you wouldn't believe what came back as number one. A lot of our cleaners were were you know mature. <laughs> Let me be diplomatic. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that came across from a, a great amount of the people surveyed was is that they worried about how their kids were going to bury them. Couldn't believe it. Right? They no. were worried about funeral costs. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so they'd never had the chance to save. They'd never had the chance to do whatever. So. I was, I was flunked by this, right? I didn't think that this was going to come back. Nobody was asking about a pound an hour, two pound an hour, whatever it might be, that this was a big, big worry. And what I did was I sent my guys to go and find out what it would cost us to take insurance out to give everyone a policy um, in life insurance. So what we did was that we we took out an uh, insurance policy of the company. So the 7,000 cleaners... Um, if unfortunately any of our cleaners pass away the following week their family get a cheque for £10,000 Oh that's a great thing So that was uh, one of the best examples that we've ever had you know where, where people were pe- and you don't believe it that all of these people think we've actually given them £10,000 so it's amazing Well the other side I was asking you um, if you've ever got or got it spectacularly wrong and I will share. It's very rare I get a chance to share something, but uh, I do remember when I launched a paper oh, way back when I was 24 and my staff had been, it was a very small staff, had been working really, really hard and I went in to see my MD and uh, said, look, just want to give them a wee bit of cash or something, do something for me, £50 or £100. Back then it would be a reasonable amount and I knew we had a huge budget. And he said, no, I can't do that. He said, but what we could do instead he said, was offering them a Mars bar a week for the best story. Too polite on a Sunday morning to tell you what he said he could put his Mars bar. But anyway, have you got anything spectacularly wrong? I think back in the early days, uh, I crazily gave a sales team a bonus incentive on turnover. And when Ah. I delved into what they were doing, there was no margin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there was loads of things getting sold, but they would always when they when they come up against a competitive price, they would always lower our price to get the sale. So it was only after about three quarters when I realised that we were making no money, but these guys were getting good bonuses that I had got that spectacularly wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we've time for. But hopefully, you've enjoyed the show. If you have any feedback for us or want to know more about how you can get involved visit thisisgo.co.uk. Don't forget, you can put questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.